1: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network. Today I'm joined by Jordan Miller, who is a PhD student in war studies at the Royal Military College of Canada, the West Point of Canada. Um, And we are not necessarily talking about a new book per se, this is part of our postscript series, where we take up relevant and contemporary questions and um, points of discussion. And we play them back and forth for a little bit. Um, Jordan is joining me to talk about a really fascinating understanding and um, sort of place to put our thinking caps on in terms of understanding narrative, understanding propaganda, and understanding armed conflict. Uh, in particular, we're gonna be talking about the war in Ukraine uh, at the moment. And we're gonna be talking about sort of how, Different sides have constructed different kinds of narrative around that event and the sort of legs where where this idea of narrative comes from and why it's really important to understand. Um, so, welcome to the New Books Network, Jordan. Thanks for joining me today. Um, and I wanted to ask you to start with uh, why should people pay attention? To these questions of narrative propaganda, do we know it's propaganda? What's the truth, Um, and and how this actually shapes all of our understandings of the current war in Ukraine?
0: That is a that is a great question and a very big one. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. Um, I mean, simply the reason that this. This kind of thing matters. The reason understanding narrative, um, information operations, propaganda in the context of armed conflict, the reason it matters is most people are busy in their day-to-day lives and don't typically have the time to understand uh, conflict at a very deep level. So they tend to understand that through news broadcasts, through social media, and through wherever else they get their news. So being able to understand that the information you're getting is not necessarily an unfiltered tap uh from the battlefield but it's being curated and presented in such a way as to present a certain impression is important to understand um there's there's the obvious benefits there for for critical thinking just to be able to look at something with a bit of a critical lens but beyond that understanding how all of the data points coalesce into a single narrative anyone who's good at at narrative at marketing uh you know there's going to be a coherent message. There's going to be a whole lot of segmentation in that messaging for different audiences and for different purposes, but they're all going to align. They're all going to broadly say the same thing. So in looking at the way in which the information is presented, what's what's emphasized, uh, what symbols, what icons, slogans, that kind of thing, uh, gives the viewer a pretty good understanding of what is being communicated to them, both the text and, and the subtext. Like, what, what are they actually saying to you?
1: And of course, you and I had the opportunity to meet and chat a little bit about some of our favorite narratives, fictional narratives, shall we say, um, by guys like Shakespeare and um, and uh, possibly people who make television shows like Matthew Weiner and uh, Mad Men. Um, and so these are fictional universes that give us an, a, a sort of a narrative that we can hold on to. Um, and so a lot of times folks think about narrative that way. Um, can, can you explain a little bit what this word itself means as we dive into sort of thinking about the narratives that are presented around armed conflict?
0: Oh, that is such a great one. Um, I mean, everything kind of hinges hinges on the narrative. Um, so for a narrative to, to resonate with someone, it has to do a whole bunch of different things. The first thing is that it has to resonate with core beliefs. And core beliefs means, you know, the social context in which you grew up, your assumptions about political order, your assumptions about human interaction, that kind of thing. Um, just as a really good sort of counter example in there if you don't speak Romanian and you look at Romanian propaganda posters from the 1950s, it it won't mean anything to you because the cultural, uh, callbacks and the cultural idioms that are being invoked in that kind of thing won't mean anything. So rooting every narrative in core beliefs, uh, is, is absolutely vital. That's really the start point. Uh, the second thing is, is the core message. Now the core message is what is actually being communicated to the audience. Um, and that's that's not always the words that are used. Uh, if we think about dog whistles, that's part of it. Um, one of the one of the best examples uh, Jason Stanley presents in his book is about uh, the Nazi message that there are Jews among us. That wasn't a factual statement of the existence of Jews in Germany. That was clearly meant as 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 a as a negative thing. Um, but you wouldn't get that out of the core message and out of the text. But that was clearly the intent. Um, Core message works a little bit like comedy in the punchline because the thing you're meant to understand isn't necessarily the thing that is set, which is, which is important. Beyond the core message, there's sort of individual messages. And that's when we start talking about uh, market segmentation and breaking down your audience. So you may have two or three different messages that effectively say the same thing, but you target them at different audiences in order for them to resonate better and you connect them with a vector. So, you know, for the under 40 and especially the under 30, uh, digital natives, if you're not trying to connect with them and using digital means, you're probably missing them. Uh, likewise for over 60, you're going to connect better with radio and television and possibly even print media. So it's important in that narrative that the message is connecting with the audience and the way in which they like to consume content. And then the two things that sort of bracket that whole thing is. The message resonating with events in the real world. That's very, very important for two reasons. The first one is that it gives the audience a sense of understanding about uh, the events going on around them. Uh, Ajit Mann's book about narrative warfare is is pretty pretty focused on this point where she says that a narrative is not a discussion about the facts, it's a discussion about the meaning of the facts. And if you have a daily drip, of events and news and, you know, an evolving world, having a narrative that gives the audience a sense of purpose and meaning and understanding of the significance of those facts is almost more important than the facts themselves. Because the facts are going to change every day with new news reports, new, new things happening, but maintaining coherence on their meaning is, is vital to a successful narrative. And then the last bit is playing into a sense of organization and group identity, either. The narrative being communicated tells you why you as a part of the in-group are correct or why you've been victimized or why the other group, the out-group, has done something wrong against you to victimize you, how they're wrong. So all these things kind of work together. Like the message doesn't exist in isolation. It has to be rooted in the context. And it also needs to communicate some measure of group identity.
1: And and so... You know, we have now this this sort of understanding, this framework. Um, And so let's get into the nitty gritty. Um, (sighs) Mr. Putin invaded Ukraine last February, as many people anticipated, but were skeptical that it would actually happen. Um, and, and so it was a kind of strange thing that transpired. Um, and then there were many expectations about what would happen once it did happen in terms of the swiftness of the end of the war, um, which hasn't been so swift. Um, and so if we get into sort of the background and understanding of how this blanket of narrative, makes us think about what's happened in Ukraine, what Russia's about, what Putin's about, what the Soviet Union was about. How how should we and how do we, in fact, think about all of those things together?
0: Oh, that's a big question. Uh, I mean, from kind of a a sort of history and strategy perspective, uh, Putin once referred to the collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. Uh, he was an intelligence officer, so he was uh, probably more deeply wedded than most to the idea of the Soviet Union. Uh, his identity as as an element of the state. Um, there were a number of revolutions when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, not least of which in Romania, which I mentioned as an example earlier. There's always been um, sort of an attempt or or a narrative about trying to regain or reclaim uh, Russian Empire or sort of Russian national pride. So if we think about the wars, uh, the first Chechen war, uh, the second one, um, and and ultimately the annexation of large parts of Ukraine in 2014, there's been kind of a constant, uh, not, not just military expansion, but, uh, you know, a rivalry to the uh, European Union in terms of economic and political cooperation in Central Asia. So Russia has since the end of the Cold War been seeking to uh, reassert itself. In, in global politics. So, you know, the adversarial relationship between Russia and Ukraine, uh, at least from the Russian perspective, is not, is not something new. What was new is the desire to escalate that from the use of deniable or semi deniable forces, as was the case in 2014, uh, to a very open and clear invasion, which was telegraphed. And again, I'm not the first one to say it, but probably telegraphed better than any war in recent memory. Um, social media had pictures of, of trains laden with, you know, tanks and armored vehicles, uh, aircraft were moving, there were aerial photographs of uh, camps of soldiers set up in Russia and Belarus along the Ukrainian border. So, in, you know, in some senses, this was extraordinary in that it was so clearly telegraphed. And yet there was still a lot of discussion about whether or not this was just an exercise or whether or not this was bluff. And to get into that sort of narrative question, again, I suspect people didn't believe it because they really didn't want to. Um, I mean, this had happened before. Nobody wants to be the country that that calls it wrong and that, you know, deploys military force into a region and thereby sort of accelerates or, or escalates a crisis. Uh, but notably, uh, President Biden was pretty clear. Um, during a white house address, when he said that he was, he was quite confident in late 2021 and early 2022, which was quite telling, um, because that seemed to betray that he had sources into the Russian government that were informing him as to what, what the Russian state's intent was, which again is in, in, in my lifetime, I cannot recall something that significant being, uh, Declassified ahead of time. We've had, you know, a number of documents that were either leaked. If we think about uh, Chelsea Manning or uh, the NSA leaks, I mean, we've we've had source documents get released in large quantities, but we've never had the intent of a foreign leader released contemporaneously, to my memory.
1: It and, and it was that was unique, and that was also what people also found befuddling. Because we're kind of like, well, the pictures say maybe he, maybe Putin is going into Ukraine. And as you say, it was kind of telegraphed all over the place. And then you have the president of the United States standing there and basically saying, we have the information. We know he's going to do this. And everybody's like. Isn't he just telling us classified information? Um, and and so there was confusion about like as you say this is not something that usually happens.
0: Yes, the the, the intention piece is is an interesting one. I mean, uh, sort of the cornerstones of of, of uh, assessments of uh, an adversary's military capability. Uh, rest, what, sorry, the assessment on whether or not a war is going to happen or whether or not there's going to be a crisis rests on capability, intention, and opportunity. So we were, we were quite aware of Russian military capability. We were watching it move along trains. The intention piece was missing, and that is exactly what President Biden released with sharing this information. Uh, the opportunity, I think, was also present. So that that really, like that intention piece I, I don't think we've ever seen it quite that clearly. And as soon as that happened, you, you know, NATO leaders started to take it a bit more seriously because suddenly, you know, the debate about capability can be had all day long. That that debate was had during the Cold War while both sides stared each other down for 40 years. But no one had the intention to start a war without provocation. That's why the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's why Noble Archer. That's why those things were so significant, because it was tilting that intention uh, to a place where it hadn't been. It was, it was sort of breaking the stasis. I think the same is true here. Uh, you know, the the, the uh, United States and Russia have many uh, nuclear uh, agreements about the use of nuclear weapons, but there aren't any treaties with respect to conventional weapons in the same way. So we've kind of left the que- uh, capability question alone, again, which is why that intention piece is so critical.
1: And, and specifically, of course, there was also the fact that Ukraine is not part of NATO. So um, so it, Putin could go into Ukraine and not necessarily therefore start World War Three immediately with um, the Western alliance, as it were. Um, so we have we have this, you know, sort of odd situation where, as you note, know, we have had we had a president who of the United States who is standing there essentially declassifying information in front of us um, and and not necessarily doing it in his mind as other presidents might do um, and and then we have this sort of overarching question of like what? Is this contributing to our narrative around what Putin is doing and what the NATO states and other sort of nation states are going to do in response? Because this becomes a really interesting contextual narrative in terms of understanding sort of why we might want to have this information out in the public.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that the really pointed answer is that it frames the narrative of in-group, out-group, us, them exceptionally clearly. Uh, Just looping back to narrative for a second, the most successful ones are the ones where there's a dyad, us good, them bad, in-group, out-group, by leaking the stated intention that Putin had to invade it gives a certain sense of urgency to everything else that was happening at that time. And in the lead up to the invasion, seeing thousands of train cars, moving tanks and armored vehicles, if you know it's not an exercise, it becomes uh, a much more brazen, um, active aggression in the minds of observers. It can't be written off as just exercise and just readiness and just training. It suddenly becomes an, an invasion that's being planned and about to be executed in the open with everybody watching that gives i think nato a much stronger uh rallying point because there can't be any dissenting voices that say well are we sure here do we really think this is an invasion if you can capture capability and intention in a single narrative uh, article 5 for nato starts to become a question of concern i mean we know ukraine's not a nato member so it doesn't apply directly But that had to be on the minds of senior leaders at the time. Uh, I mean, a lot of those forces were being run through Belarus, which shares a border with Poland, who is a NATO member. Uh, So the Article 5 question becomes really a rallying point for all NATO members. I mean, the last time we saw that was on 9-11. And and NATO clearly responded with, I mean, uh, uh, American led, obviously. Um, But the operations in Afghanistan followed from that declaration directly. So, you know, simplifying that narrative right down to this is, a, this is an act of aggression that we're watching unfold in real time, we need to do something before it's too late, that becomes a very simple phrase to understand. And that becomes something um, for NATO members, much easier to convince their publics domestically. Um, you know, depending on, <laughs> on which school of international relations uh, theory you ascribe to, perhaps the domestic population does or doesn't matter. Uh, I believe that it does. It, it becomes much simpler to explain to domestic publics. So it means that mobilizing um, weapons, ammunition, fuel, equipment, uh, intelligence support, moral support, loans—that kind of thing—it becomes just as important for domestic populations in in NATO countries because NATO leaders can clearly present the same narrative to their domestic population and get policy support. Um, for helping ukraine
1: and what we have seen unfold in the last six eight months or however long it's been um, 10 months uh is that the sort of pre-game period um, which started to set up the narrative dyad as you note um was really important in terms of pulling together the alliance of NATO countries and other <clears throat> connected or related countries who may not be part of NATO, but were also willing to sort of step up. Um, and and that this was vital with regard to supporting the Ukrainians in their fight against the Russian invasion. Is that correct?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, in, in, in my lifetime, we have not seen this level of... I would say, unity around a single issue within NATO. If we looked to Afghanistan, and again, these, these contexts are completely different, but every NATO country had a slightly different uh, contribution to either Afghanistan and even to the training mission in Iraq that followed. And, and, you know, it's not to say that NATO nations are all contributing the same way to supporting Ukraine today. I mean, far from it. Some countries are donating more than others. Some are, you know, more, more emphasis on, on funding or on, on ammunition and equipment. But there seems to be a common understanding around the objective, and that is to give Ukraine all the tools it needs to continue fighting. If we look to Afghanistan and Iraq, the NATO, you know, some countries are much more focused on combat operations or on provincial reconstruction or on training the police. Um, so I, I think just the, the simplicity of the situation in terms of an invasion has occurred and Ukraine is defending itself on its homeland That narrative becomes so much simpler to rally uh, NATO members behind than something that talks about, you know, long term reconstruction or, you know, developing a police force or institution building. Again, not to say that Ukraine won't won't want those things on the other side of the conflict, uh, but that's that's a conversation for once the conflict has concluded. We're still, I mean, obviously very, very much in it.
1: And so we are in this conflict um, and, and, you know, you have, you have explored it and you've studied it um, and, and you've also, you know, sort of put over it, this framework of narrative and also propaganda. Um And and to some degree how the truth is defined. Um, and and that also gets to sort of the on the ground experience that we've seen the Russians and the Ukrainians have in battling one another um, from, you know, um, from long kinds of traffic jams coming into places that the Russians were trying to reach to uh civilian bombings in Ukraine. And now we have Ukrainians pushing into Russia. Um, so, what Ian, give us a, a a little sort of ten thousand foot analysis of how the war in Ukraine, as it's been going on, um, has sort of come into this framework that you have been sort of working on and developing?
0: Yeah, uh, that's a great one, and I, I think the common side of both um, both the Russian narratives and and the Ukrainian narratives have focused a lot on primary evidence. That is to say, the live footage, um, for, for good or for bad, I would point out, um, you know, at the start of the war, uh, Zelensky famously said, or was alleged to have said, again, we don't know if that's true for sure, but he was alleged to have said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. He, he may have said that, uh, but I could also envision a situation where he did not say that, but wanted that communicated because it signals his resolve that he's going to stay in his country and continue to lead it all the much more believable because he has stayed and he has been seen, you know, in subway stations, walking through the streets of Kyiv. He's been, he's been spotted, you know, many, many places inside the country. So the fact that Zelensky is staying to fight and to lead is that that is a fact. Uh, So whether or not that statement at the start was true or not is almost immaterial because it had the emotional impact it was intended to. Uh, Likewise, the ghost of Kyiv was, You know, to your your original question about sort of narrative and propaganda, uh, you know, propaganda is a kind of narrative, um, but it is not fully genuine in the sense that it is much more focused on eliciting an emotional response based in truth. Um, The Ghost of Kiev was allegedly a MiG-29 pilot who apparently shot down half of the Russian Air Force over Kiev or, or something to that effect. And the video evidence presented was a ukrainian air force mig-29 flying over Kyiv. so we know that that happened do we know that this aircraft shot many many adversary aircraft down well no but i don't think anyone dug too deeply either because that message rallied with sort of the sorry it it aligned with zelensky's rallying call of defiance to stay in Kyiv and to defend the homeland uh, so much so that the ukrainians later admitted the ghost of kiev was in fact a fabrication um but that that you know if, if we think back to classical propaganda theory and 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 lu he talks about the need for uh claims to be not demonstrably disprovable and even if they eventually are disproven if it's had the emotional impact it no longer matters which i think we saw with the ghost of kiev i mean it it was it was a it was a propaganda lever, and it worked quite well in the eyes of people who wanted to see uh, Ukraine continue to fight and to continue to be defiant.
1: And and so we also have we have this sort of rallying on the Ukrainian side, but we also have another narrative going on in Russia, one that obviously Putin and his circle and the elites are are putting out, but also we start to see cracks in the Russian sort of understanding of what's going on, um, as the situation becomes more desperate. Um, and so I, I found it interesting late as we got into the summer and there was this push to essentially draft all men in Russia that suddenly the Russians were not keen on this war as they maybe had once been.
0: Yes. Uh, hmm. So just uh, to, to sort of embrace the Russian language, it, 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 it is not a war, it is a special military operation. And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not being glib with that, because there comes with it a, a different set of rules about who can be drafted into service, what sort of uh, resources of the state can be mobilized. The expectation from the Russian side was that this would be a very quick conflict. And it was it was marketed as such um when things didn't go quite so well uh the russian government needed to mobilize a lot of soldiers so that wasn't drafting everybody it was more like calling back people who had done their initial service so they had some limited military training and they were being pressed back into service uh likewise we've seen increased reliance on private military companies which again something we saw the russians do in syria so you know neither of those things are necessarily out of the ordinary in and of themselves um but if we think about the differential between the very sort of high aspirations for a quick short war and what has now come to pass, that that I think is where the significance lies. It's, I mean, the actions are significant in and of themselves, but they have a sort of a special power because of these shifting expectations about what was possible and what victory uh, was going to be achieved. And again, we've seen that, in, you know, similar uh, overtures made at the political level about the desire to negotiate. Um which really looks like Russia trying to freeze the gains that they've had and convince the Ukrainians to cede some of their territory permanently in exchange for an end to the war, which uh, you know Zelensky and other Ukrainian leaders have been very clear is, is not something they're interested in at this time.
1: So the Russian narrative has been a little bit different as it's evolved from not quite the quick um, and, and sort of seven days and we're out of here. Um, and we're 10 months in and we're still here, um, situation. And that is also, you know, sort of what is being communicated to Russian citizens with regard to the demands on them and potentially not just sacrifices in terms of being at war, but also scarcity and inflation and so forth.
0: Yeah, that's a great point that speaks directly to the targeting of narratives, um, it uh, A lot of those messages aren't meant for Western consumption um, because they're communicated to or through, uh, you know, Russian political talk shows. In Russian, obviously, uh, we, we are not the target audience. Uh, I mean, you can find them on social media with the subtitles. Uh, you, there's a number of accounts on Twitter that share those. The thing that I find most interesting is that there's a constant evolution of the talking points from, you know, there's still sort of this, Denazification theme that keeps coming up now and then. Uh, We've seen simultaneous, not simultaneous, but we've seen some messages suggesting, you know, why is this war even continuing? Ukraine and Russia aren't that different. And then a week later, you know, really, really highlighting the differences between Russia and Ukraine. So there's there's not a lot of, I would say, coherence in the, there's not a lot of coherence in the messaging. It's all part of a narrative of sort of, Russia is good. And the things Russia does is for the sake of Russian power and, and, and sort of Russian national confidence. Uh, I mean, Russian audiences are getting a coherent narrative in the sense that all the data points align with that overall narrative, but the data points keep shifting uh, quite, quite regularly. We've seen the nuclear issue raised. We've heard some of the the talk show hosts uh, make pretty grand nuclear threats uh, following on from things that that the president has said. So you know, those, those messages are not intended necessarily for Western consumption. Like, I think that has more to do with uh, sort of strongman message control, which you see in most most authoritarian states. Um, I, trying to decipher the specifics has sort of evaded me because there's just there's so much change up. Uh, it, the only thing this looks similar to is some of the stuff that came out surrounding MH17, uh, when that aircraft was shot down uh, a number of years ago. The messaging shifted from, you know it was the Ukrainians who shot the airplane down to perhaps the Israelis were involved, and maybe it was the Americans. and you know, there was one there was one story that the the plane was already full of bodies when it took off somehow. Um, and And this is kind of the idea that you throw out so many confusing different versions of the story that the truth, if it is even knowable, uh, becomes so obscured that the data points are really all viewers have to go on. It all falls within the narrative of, you know, the state as a powerful entity that is protecting its people and don't ask too many questions about how that happens or why that happens. So there is, you know, that's, that's the one thing I really want to hammer on is that just because the data points are in many different directions, doesn't mean they're all part of a coherent narrative in the sense that it's communicating something about the relationship between the people and the state.
1: And, and in particular, we also have the, you know, the other side of that, when you're talking about NATO countries working in unison, you're talking about a whole bunch of different populations, domestic populations that have different engagement with Russia. Um, If we think about, you know, Germany and Great Britain with regard to access to petroleum reserves that the Russians have um, and, you know, how much their heating bills are going to be this winter, um, which I know is part of the strategy, um, of you know, sort of breaking up the NATO alliance. But the United States's position is much different than theirs um, in terms of what we get from Russia. Um, and so all of these, you know, you have to pull together a narrative, a coherent narrative for disparate populations to work together against Russia, which isn't the Soviet Union also.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the, the strategic choices that NATO members make are fundamentally about doing the best they can for their interests while also minimizing the costs they pay for those. Um, if I'm Germany and I, I rely pretty heavily on Russian natural gas, perhaps, um, my willingness to engage in provocative action or something that would be perceived as provocative uh, is is lower than a country who doesn't have the same kind of energy dependence. That is to say, you know, the threat of retribution is perhaps somewhat reduced if you don't face the same challenges, which is absolutely true. I mean, that's uh, going to shape the individual decisions that each state makes in terms of what they're willing to do and what they're willing to say and, you know, how how bellicose they're willing to be about saying it the thing I would point out is that the longer the conflict has carried on and the more we've seen evidence of war crimes, whether it's, you know, phone calls or the photos or or other things, uh, that, that I think has fundamentally shifted the calculus for a lot of NATO countries where this is no longer simply being perceived as a war of one side against the other. We're seeing a lot more, um, I would say very broad humanitarian, uh, rhetoric, uh, a lot of things comparing it to the Holocaust, a lot of side-by-side photos of when war ravaged Ukraine uh, during the Second World War. Sometimes the same streets or streets that look very similar. So the, the increase in human rights uh, abuses and war crimes, uh, I mean, alleged at this state, but the evidence is, is everywhere. Um, those things, I think, are shaping uh, NATO perceptions much, much more. Because the parallels between the Second World War and today, at least at the level of the rhetoric and the images, I, I think is taking root in it with with NATO publics in a way it did not before those images came out.
1: Yeah, and and so they and as you say, they're more data points in in a broad narrative umbrella, um, and so they continue to be fairly coherent um, in terms of you know, continuing the opposition to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, And and whether that may be painful in different ways for different nation states, most of the nation states remain willing to do it.
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the United States keeps announcing a new a new aid package seemingly every two or three weeks uh, in the hundreds of millions. Typically, Uh, Canada just announced um, that the government is going to support uh, Ukrainian reconstruction of telecommunications networks, which isn't weapons and ammunition, though Canada has donated uh, a number of you know weapon systems and ammunition over the past eight or nine months. But repairing telecommunications networks speaks to connecting the nation and rebuilding it and allowing information flows uh, to resume in a way that, well, I mean it could get struck by cruise missiles again. Time will tell. Um, but it's you know to me to me that one is significant because we're now seeing the discussion about what happens next and about infrastructure. Again, it's not to say that the war is over far from it, but we are seeing an emphasis, uh, however small on non-military activity.
1: And, and so if we were to sort of stand back and look at the role of narrative and the role of propaganda, and the role of truth and facts and how they sort of are connected in these ways in our thinking about the, the recent events in Ukraine over the last almost year. Um, And, you know, Russia going back a little further than that. Um, We, we see these big pieces, the, the dyad, the in-group, the out-group, the, you know, Russia, bad, Ukraine, good, Zelensky hero, Putin, bad dude, um, components of the narrative, but are there other dimensions that we're not really paying attention to that also potentially influence our understanding of that narrative?
0: Yeah, I think there's been a pretty consistent effort to, uh, humanize Ukrainian soldiers and service people. Uh, there was a video that was released or sorry, developed by the Ukrainians before the invasion, uh, where it, it was Imagery of Ukrainian soldiers fighting, but none of them identified as a soldier. Like you would see someone shooting and they would say, oh, I'm an IT developer or someone shooting and say, yeah, I've got a wedding to go to this summer. So the Ukrainians have really mobilized the idea that their army is a citizen army, which it is. Uh, I mean, in, they're being increasingly battle hardened. Um, they've, they've been fighting the Russians in some degree since 2014. S- but, but they're sticking with the narrative that this is an army of the people uh, sort of citizens who were forced into a situation they would otherwise rather not be in. We're seeing a lot of videos of soldiers who have adopted cats and dogs. Um, So you'll see them in their trench lines with videos of cats. And that has nothing to do with the combat situation, but it has to do with humanizing the soldiers who are fighting this war. Um, Seeing soldiers go into villages to liberate them, seeing civilians come out of cellars and garages to welcome people who who are liberating them. Uh, obviously plays very, very directly into that us good, them bad. We're here to, to protect and save the people. Uh, And then there's also kind of some silly stuff like soldiers dancing, um, which interestingly, you know, it's, it's attracted a lot of attention um, on Western social media platforms with this being, you know, evidence of a woke army, whatever that even means. Um, But it, there's, there's, there's a humanizing quality to it. The same way the ghost of Kiev was meant to be this single hero who was standing up. Um, so too, do you see soldiers who are fighting, but also dancing also high five their buddies also having a good time. Um, I, I'm not the first person to say this. There was a, there was a discussion on the loop cast about, uh, aesthetic and how there's, you know, nothing more frightening than seeing your enemy smile. I, I think that's part of it that, um, the, the humanization of the Ukrainian soldiers is meant to show sort of the happy warriors who are fighting on behalf of home and hearth and are going to continue to do so. That in no way detracts, you know, back to the conversation about truth. It in no way detracts from, you know, the images that were coming out of Mariupol, uh, the images of trench warfare near Bakhmut we've seen surface, like none of these things exist in isolation. Um, but there's been, you know, quite, quite a concerted effort to show, the good times, as well as the bad, and to portray this as, I would say, a long struggle, but very much um, a homegrown and citizen-driven struggle. Which, you know, from from the NATO perspective, if that is meant to be influencing NATO leaders, you know, this kind of gets back to the Afghanistan thing. Um, there were some pretty powerful images as the country was falling, about hundreds of millions of dollars of aircraft, uh, vehicles just abandoned. Um, at airfields as, as American forces were pulling out. And this became something of a, of a media show point uh, for the Biden administration. By continuing to show combat victories and soldiers who are continuing to fight with high morale, there's really not much any detractor could say about whether or not this investment is being, is being well spent and if you know those receiving the weapons are using them and are continuing to use them to maximum effect. All you have to do is go on TikTok and (laughs) you will will see the evidence. And those videos are shared on Facebook and shared on Twitter. They're they're everywhere. But they, you know, back to the original point about people who don't really have the time to, to do a lot of research and understand this conflict in a really deep way. The Ukrainians are sharing all of this, whether it's being done officially or just being permitted officially, that material is going from the battlefield unfiltered around the world, probably within a few hours of it being videotaped, which means that, you know, someone like me at home can take out his phone and go, huh, look at that. They're dancing in Kyrgyzstan.
1: Okay. And they're real people. This is, this is not, this is not some sort of construction of an image by some state apparatus. Um,
0: most likely not i i think there's too much variety and way too much uh individuality like this is not the kind of thing that would lend itself well to a centralized messaging model um and again this isn't this isn't much of a much of a grand claim beyond kind of the heuristics of it but it all looks and feels pretty real because it's decentralized no two dances are the same the terrain is always different like there's always something that you know, if we think back to uh, what's that test called where you can tell whether or not you're having a conversation with a robot, um, th- most of the stuff coming out seems to pass th- the similar test for something coordinated because it just, there's there's too much variety and it moves too quickly for it to be centralized. I think.
1: And, and you also mentioned to me before we started recording that there were uh, people in the West who maybe were creating some, Also, similarly silly kinds of memes to um, to kind of drive continued support for Ukraine, Um, the North Atlantic Fellas Association or organization.
0: Uh, NAFO. Yeah. Yeah. NAFO is is interesting because it doesn't speak directly to the conflict in the sense that, you know, it's a cartoon. They're like you're not you're not deploying cartoons as weapons in the traditional sense, but it's just become this meme that shows up everywhere. Um, people will take that little dog head and put it on top of a uniform. Perhaps you know I, I've seen some that uh, I'm assuming are run by Polish individuals, so it's wearing a Polish army beret. There are others where they're wearing tracksuits. There's one where. You know, there's NAFO dogs partying on a beach in Crimea, wearing a Borat bathing suit. Like it's it's all there. And and they've been, you know, basically trolling Russian diplomats on Twitter and getting into uh, flame wars with with agents of the Russian state. And and the only thing that's consistent across it is the fact that they're just these little dogs all dressed differently, all with a slightly different kind of zeitgeist. the zeitgeist is consistent, but the details are always different. So, you know, thinking back to narrative, it's all the same doggo, <laughs> but it's customized based on who the user is and based on what they're trying to do. And, you know, just like the uh, the dancing soldier videos, I'm inclined to believe that it's a real person behind each one of them, because in addition to doing their trolling, sometimes they talk about their interests. There are some people who talk about how they're gun enthusiasts. They're not, you know, proclaiming themselves to be Second Amendment folks, though they might be. And then there are others who are talking about how they do have a dog like that. And there's no, like, there's there's enough variation in the context uh, and in what they're posting such that I'm I'm hard pressed to believe it is coordinated from the top. It could be people coordinating from the bottom, but they're they're everywhere. There's t-shirts you can buy them online. Like there's there's a merchandising aspect to this conflict that I. I don't think anybody could have foreseen at the start. I mean I say like I have a ghost of Kiev t-shirt so I'm you know I'm I'm subject to this also.
1: Yeah. And there's, you know, Zelensky's on T-shirts and he's on, obviously he's on Time Magazine this week. And, and so his image is also everywhere as a kind of image of the, of, of this conflict also. Um, So you have this popular culture celebrity, because that's also how he got his start, um, connected as well to the sort of political dimensions of a Russian invasion of another country.
0: Yeah, he's he's been a quite a powerful image. Uh his his beard grew out relatively quickly. That's really the only major change you see. Uh I mean he looked pretty weary at the start and continues to. That I think is almost part of the aesthetic. Like he's meant to look like the guy who is very tired because he's he's doing everything he can for his country, which I suspect he is. Uh you know, he was interviewed about the bombing of Babin Yar and was suitably quite sullen about it um i've also seen a you know summer beach party in Crimea august 2023 it's it's an ad because it presumes that uh, the ukrainians will have won by then so his image gets used in both senses it's both this sort of solemn dark determination but also zelensky smiling it's like ah oh, yes we're going to win this war one day that's what it's meant to communicate so you know kind of like the the fellas it, it can be used as kind of a cudgel or used as a shield depending on how those images are used to communicate what what the developer wants wants to show
1: and so jordan this is um this is sort of the heart of your doctoral work um i believe and yes. so once you're you're finished with the dissertation which will happen Soon, um, will you? you cont- are more optimistic than I. <laughs> <laughs> will you continue down this research stream um, in terms of understanding propaganda, narrative, truth, and facts in in conflict areas, or will you sort of take it to other places?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, my dissertation work looks at the role of narrative and information operations, both by state groups, which we've been talking about today. Uh, but also armed non-state groups. I've done a lot of research on on the Taliban and the Islamic State and the way in which they do do similar things and the way in which they mobilize it. Uh, in terms of what comes next, that that is uh, a bit of an open question. I've been kicking a few. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to catbird myself here, but uh, you know, the structure by which these things happen is is fascinating to me. Uh, because we know some organizations are very sort of rigid and hierarchical in the way that they develop and deliver their information operations. And we also know that other organizations, you know, like the fellas, I, I don't even know if we would consider them a state organization, but I would love to know more about how they're organized. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of research about uh, like Paul Stanilad's book about uh, networks of rebellion is a, is a great work on the way in which structure uh, can tell you a whole lot about the group's probability for success. Um I think, you know, this This is something that obviously interests me a great deal, um, whether or not it stays in conflict or whether or not I look into other security issues. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly open to opportunity wherever that takes me.
1: Well, I thank you for joining me today, Jordan Miller, um, and discussing this really fascinating area on PostScript on the New Books Network. And I look forward to continuing conversations with you.
0: Wonderful. Thanks a lot, Lily. I really enjoyed it.